the title slide. This is the series that we're in. It's a series called Ephesians chapter 1. When we get it finished, we're going to change the color of the slide and do another series called Ephesians chapter 2 and so on. But it's a series in Ephesians 1. So it only goes so long. See, it's not real long. It's just chapter 1. And um, where we are is that we're in our fourth message today, and we happen to be in the fourth verse. But I want to get a running start, reaching back into verse 3. So we're going to look back in verse 3. Here it is appearing for you, Ephesians 1, 3. And Paul wants you to get this. So pay close attention to this. He wants you to live here. He says, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We looked at that last week. I'm not going to try and repeat it all, but you get the idea. Here's where Paul wants the Ephesians. Here's where Paul wants you all. He wants you to do life. He wants you living. He wants you every day with a blessing in your soul, with blessing on your lips. You're going through life blessing God. The opposite is cursing. The opposite is things close to cursing, like grumbling and murmuring and complaining and grumping your way through life. No, you're supposed to be going through your life in Christ, blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing God. This is a way of life for a child of God. Why? What reasons can he give me that that I should bless him? Because, as the verse says, because he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is the Christian life. We live blessing God because he has so richly blessed us. And then Paul's going to unfold for us in seven ways, seven things that he he means when he says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's going to give us seven of them. We're looking at the first of those seven today. It's in verse 4. And here's verse 4. How can I live blessing God? How can I... Bless him because I received every spiritual blessing from him. What are those blessings? Here's the first one, Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us, that's the Father, in him, that's the Son, before the foundation of the world, that's before Genesis 1, 1, that, there's a purpose in it, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so Paul says, I want you living with a blessing to God in your soul and on your lips. I want you living every day, blessing and blessing and blessing God. Well, how can I do that? It's a rough world. Yeah, but he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Name one. All right, here's the first one. He's naming it. And the first spiritual blessing he unfolds for us is, look, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he chose you unto holiness, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So next slide says, blessing number one is this. He chose us to be holy before him. I don't even care if there's no number two, three, four, five, six, seven. Number one's pretty juicy. I can do a lot of blessing God just on number one. There's six more to come. But this one's pretty juicy. He chose me? Me? Did he know about me? Yes, he did. Did he know? what I? Yes, he knew. He chose me to be holy before him? Yes. Look at the verse again. It's right there. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let me give you an outline of how we're going to cover that verse. Here's my outline. First, we're going to talk about what he did 
Secondly, we're going to talk about when he did it. And thirdly, we're going to talk about why he did it, because those are all three real plainly in our verse. So first, let's talk about what he did. Here's the verse again. He chose us in him. The Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world. He chose us. So here we are looking at our Bibles, and that word election is staring up at us. You're like, do you believe in election? Of course so, I have to. I believe the Bible, and the Bible says he chose us. And it's the word eklektas, he, he elected us. It's the same way you make choices. You elect to eat there and not there. You elect to get those groceries and not these groceries. God does electing, God does choosing. And I'm supposed to be blessing him, blessing him, blessing him because he's given me spiritual blessings, the first of which is he chose you. That's pretty good. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is a very important blessing, so important that Paul actually uses synonyms for this chose word two other places in the seven. Let's look at them. I'll show them to you. The next one is the next verse, Ephesians 1.5. This will be the second blessing, adoption. But notice he says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So in eternity past, he established his will. In time, he's working all things according to the counsel of his established predetermined will. And one of the things he determined, one of the things he predestined was he would adopt us to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will. His will is his good pleasure. He does according to his good pleasure. None can stay his hand. He's a sovereign God. And his will is his thelema, his, his purpose, what he's predestined. So he, he chose you in verse 4. He predestined you in verse 5. And again in verse 11 we read, here it is, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, there in eternity past, before Genesis 1-1, there's God's eternal counsel, there's his sovereign will, there are his purposes, and everything that's happening in time is absolutely and strictly um, according to his will. He's working all things. He's a hand-on deity, He's not the God of the deist who made, a, made the earth like a clock, made the universe like a clock, wound it up, sat it on the shelf, and went away somewhere. No, he's a very hands-on deity. He's very present with it, and he's working all things. That thing, that thing, that, you name a thing, he's working that thing, all, according to the counsel of his will. What a comforting verse, by the way, to know that even that thing, all right, God's working in that. He's not like sounding alarms in heaven. Look what they did now, Gabriel. No, no, no. He knew. But we're predestined. That word predestined is a cool Greek word. Every now and then there's a cool Greek word. I've got to tell you about the cool Greek words. It's, it's pra, meaning before, and horizo, from which we get a horizon. So he drew a circle around us before is the idea. I'm being too literal, but you get it. He pra horizoed us. He said, Heartland. He actually said the date. It's going to be in September of 71. That's when he's going to hear the gospel and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to believe. He, he chose me and he predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things. So I'm supposed to live blessing. How can I do that? It's a rough planet. 
Well, he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Well, can you give me an example? Here's example number one. He chose you. He predestined you. And his eternal counsel in eternity past, he said on September whatever the day was, 1971, Heartland will hear the gospel. Heartland will believe. I'll send my Holy Spirit to Heartland. I'll give him faith. I'll give him repentance. I'll turn him to Jesus Christ. And why did I believe? That's why. So I'm like, Lord, this is amazing. Bless you. Bless you. I, I was a hell-deserving sinner. There's nothing in me. He didn't look at me and say, oh, if I could just get Heartland in my kingdom, you know, it'd be amazing. No, 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 no. Hell-deserving sinner, unworthy of the least of his mercies. There are a lot of other verses about this. I'm not going to drag you through all of them, but I am going to drag you through some of them. Okay. So one of them is Acts 13, 48. What a cool verse. Look at it with me. Paul's out preaching the gospel. Dr. Luke is there, and he's recording what happened. And here's what Dr. Luke writes down. Well, there were people who believed that time. So Dr. Luke's going to tell us how come they believed. This is like, how come you believed and the person beside you didn't? How come I believed but my sister hasn't? She's a Zen Buddhist. How come I believed but the guy I went to high school with didn't, and he died a couple years ago in his sins, and I was there? I went to see him right before he died. How come I believed and they didn't? Dr. Luke explains that to us in these words. He uses another word that we haven't seen yet in Ephesians 1, but it's the same idea. Here's why you believed. Here's why they believed. As many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. How come he believed? He didn't look like he was going to be a believer. He was far from God. No, God had ordained him in eternity past to believe. That was the moment. That's the time. The gospel came to him in the power of the Holy Spirit. His heart was turned to God. He was awakened to the things of God, and he became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to pause here and just say, I know some of you all line these things up a little differently. Some of you all will understand the predestination to work differently. Some of you all will have some other things that, that God predestined because of and so on and so forth. Are, are you allowed to be at Cornerstone and feel differently about it? Yes. We've got to have somebody to debate with. We've got to have somebody we can teach. So, yes, you can be here. This is something intramural. We believers can, can differ on this. We can take different viewpoints on it. But I'm the one you're paying to preach, so you're getting the right view. All right. So as, as, as many as were ordained, believed. That's good news, by the way. This is off, I'm off course now. This is why sharing the gospel with friends is not a fool's errand. There are people out there who have been ordained by the eternal God to believe, and you might be the means of getting the gospel to them someday, somewhere. And so if we're just faithful to preach the gospel and share the word of God and tell people about Jesus Christ, all those whom God has ordained are going to believe. There's people out there who are going to believe. I don't even have to be smart. I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be good. All I have to be good at this. All I have to do is give them God's word. The power is in it. The spirit of God uses it, and they can believe. It's not like, well, I have to learn all the apologetics and all the answers. No, you don't. It would help. But just give them the word. All right, so there's another passage we have to go through. I told you I'm not going to drag you through all of them, but I am going to take you to a juicy one. So, but first, it's a quiz. Quiz time at Cornerstone. You all ready? They did real good in the first service, so no pressure, but here we go in the second service. What is the, the Bible's 
premier, most lengthy, most dense, most clear teaching passage on this God's electing, God's predestining, God's choosing, God's ordaining people to salvation. What's, what's the big bomb teaching passage? What book and chapter? Yeah, Romans 9. I don't know who over there. Is that you, Peter? Was that you, Jason? You were in the first service. You heard it. You already knew it. You knew it anyway, bro. Romans 9. Let me take you to some Romans 9. Paul's talking about Jacob and Esau, the brothers Jacob and Esau. And he says, though they, 9-11, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born. Why is that in there? It means it's not based on something they did once they were born. And though they had done nothing either good or bad, not yet, not in what we're talking about here. It's not based on them being born and doing good or bad things. Why not? Why wasn't it based on them being born and doing good or bad things? Here's why. In order that God's purpose of election might be established, might continue, might stand. So it's, it's not according to what you did. I was smarter. I heard the gospel. I figured out it's right. I'm philosophical. I had read Plato, and he was wrong, and Jesus is right. And so, not that at all. It's that God had purposes of election, and they came from before you were born. And there, to finish the verse, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's because he calls. It's not because you have works. It's not because, oh, I was smarter and I believed. Well, praise to you, but there will be no praise to you. None shall boast. So Paul's teaching this. He goes on, Romans 9, 15. For he, God, says to Moses, and here's a quote from the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have. I know I added extra wills, but they're there. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God says, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I, I don't see me in there. I don't see any of us in there. It's God. He's the sovereign God exercising his will and working all things according to the counsel of his will down through time, including human salvation. He's a sovereign God. Look at Romans 9, 16. Paul says, so then, it, salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Amen. Like, you see why you can bless God? It's not like, bless me, bless me, bless me, because I was smart enough to figure it all out. No, no, no. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually blind. You were darkened and sin-deadened, and God sent his spirit to you in the day of his power, and God sent the gospel to you, and you turned, and you believed, and you were awakened, and you became a new creature in Christ. And that depends not on human will or exertion. Actually, the human will, where does the human will come in? The human will is the first thing God works on. He turns your will. And you willingly, freely, gladly embrace Jesus Christ. When I believed, I didn't say, How, you forced me. I didn't want that. No, no, no. I, I wanted it. How come I all of a sudden wanted it? He turned my will. Paul says he works in you both on your willer and on your doer. You have a willer. He works on your willer and makes it willing. He makes you willing in the day of his power. And Paul goes on in uh, verse 18, Romans 9, 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And just to show you we're tracking right with Paul, Paul anticipates the objection. The objection is, wait a minute, that's not fair. Right? Paul gets that. 
He knows, he knows that's going to well up in our little sinful hearts. And so look at Romans 9, 19 and following. You will say to me then, writes Paul, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then the fault finder gets a answer like the one Job got when Job was complaining about God. He gets a Job-like answer, and here's the answer. Paul says, but who are you? <laughs> I like that verse. Who are you? God says to me, Paul says, who are you? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, that's you, say to its molder, that's God, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, that's God, no right over the clay, that's you, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, that's one who's going to believe, and another for dishonorable use, that's one who's not going to believe. It's a strong passage, but we are committed to the word of God. We believe what's in our Bibles. We don't try to radically reinterpret it to make it mean something else. We don't come to it with an agenda. Well, I need it to say X, so I'm going to make it say, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. But what we want to know is, what did God make it say? What does God mean when he says it? So all this is going back to what Paul said in Ephesians 1. And to kind of summarize all this so far, the part about bless God. How can I do that? He's given you spiritual blessings. Can you name one? Here's the first one. He chose you. He predestined you. You were ordained, and that's why you believe. Let me give you two quotes from great theologians, one in the 1900s. His name was... He's with Jesus now, but his name was John Murray. I love John Murray. And he writes, Paul, by eloquent reiteration, is jealous to affirm that God's predestination proceeds from the pure sovereignty and absolute determination of his counsel and his will. John Murray, 100 years before him, another great seminary professor, Charles Hodge, writes, in his commentary on Ephesians 1. From eternity, the whole scheme of redemption with all its details and in all its results lay matured in the divine mind. So we're not the first ones to read Ephesians 1 and say, hey, we're not the first ones to read Romans 9 and say, hey, it, it looks like God does the choosing. And for that, I bless him. So what he did, he chose us. Now we're going to go on to point two in our three-point sermon. Secondly, well, when did he do it? And the answer is, well, he did it before the foundation of the world. Let's look at the verse again, Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why is that in there? What's the point of he chose you before the foundation of the world? The point is you weren't there yet. It's the same thing we saw in Romans. It, it's not based on, well, you did good things, so you're good. You did bad things, so you're bad. It's not based on did you do good or bad. It's like Jacob and Esau. So this is he chose you before your father met your mother. He chose you before they got married and did that marriage thing. He chose you before you were conceived. He chose you before you were gestated. He chose you before you were born. He chose you before you were two. He chose you before you were five. He chose you before the day you heard the gospel and believed. He chose you 
before the foundation of the world. What was going on back there? It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternal counsel decreeing what shall surely come to pass all down through time. Every bit of it. Remember Ephesians 1.11, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, including your salvation and their salvation and my salvation. So when he did it, he did it before the foundation of the world. This, my friends, is sovereign election. This is sovereign grace. This is sovereign choice. So let's review what he did. He chose us. When he did it, before the foundation of the world. Now thirdly, why he did it. It's that we should be holy. So in eternity past, God looked at that entire race of equally fallen, hell-deserving sinners, unworthy of the least of his mercies, nothing in us to commend us to God, Some of us were not outstanding. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks God. We weren't seeking God. We were busy making idols. Our hearts are idol factories and worshiping our idols. And he looked at that equally hell-deserving mass of sinners, and out of that group, he picked some and said, I'm going to save them anyway. They don't deserve I'm going to save that one and that one and that one and that one for my glory and for my grace. And I have a purpose in saving them. I want them to be holy. I want a holy people, a people for my possession, a people for my praise. I want holy people. So I'm going to make some people holy. I'm going to save some people, and here's my purpose from before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy. Let's look again at the verse, Ephesians 1, even as... He chose us, the Father chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. There's the purpose. God wants some people who are holy and blameless before him. And if you're in Christ, you are. Bless him. Bless God. How can I bless God? It's a rough life down here on the planet. Oh, but he's given you every spiritual blessing. Name one. Here's one. He chose you that he would make you holy, and that's what he's doing. That's why you've believed in the gospel. You're becoming one of those holy people that he chose. The election is unto holiness. Now, here's something you need to know. This is going to get a little theological like it hasn't been already, right? Um, When you're reading through your Bible and you come across the word holiness, it's actually used in two different ways, and you need to understand this or you'll get messed up when you're reading your Bible. So there are two meanings for the word holiness. There is, and there's a slide for this, there is imputed holiness, which some say is positional, and there is imparted holiness, which some say is practical. We need to understand these, and they're both going to play into Ephesians chapter 1. Stay with me. Let's talk about this for a bit. So there is, next slide, imputed holiness, which is positional. Now, If you don't already have the word imputation in your vocabulary, please put it in there today. Don't say, well, he used a word I didn't know. No, bless God, you're coming to know that word today. Uh, You need to know about the doctrine of, and so you need to know the word of imputation. What is imputation? Let me give you just a 
simple, on the street, rough and ready definition. What happens in imputation, it's a double imputation, by the way. What happens is God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and reckons it to your account. So when he sees you, he sees you in Christ, righteous, holy, blameless, unreprovable, hallelujah. Your sins go to Christ, and Christ bears them in his own body on the tree, and the righteousness of Christ comes to you, and God sees you in Christ holy and unblameable and unreprovable. That is what imputation is. Let me give you an illustration that might help. Let's imagine, and maybe for some of us this won't take much imagination, let's imagine you just got the text from your bank saying uh, your account is on zero. Your account is on zero, and you think, oh, I better move some from savings over to checking quick. So you get, get your app, and you, go to, and you look in savings, and it's also on zero. So you're on zero, zero. What are you going to do? And then I'm your friend, and I'm a nice guy, and I hear that you're on zero, zero because you tell me about it, and I, and I, just, I just take 100 bucks out of my account because I'm not on zero, fortunately. I take 100 bucks and I go to your bank and I say, hey, th- this is for Pastor Stan. He told me he's on zero. Can I? They wouldn't let me do this anyway, right? But he's on, can, can I put $100 on his account? And they say, sure, Mr. Hartland, you can do that. We will reckon that money to Pastor Stan's account. And, and they do. And now he looks and, well, look at that. I got 100 bucks. Now, he didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. He didn't even deserve it. You don't deserve it, bro. But he got it as a gift of grace. And that $100 is now really reckoned to his account. When the bank looks now, they say, Stan has 100 bucks. God reckons the righteousness of Christ to your account when you turn and believe on the Lord Jesus. And he reckons your sins to Christ, who bears them in his own body on the tree. And this is called by some the great transaction. And this is called by others the... Um, Uh, the double imputation of holiness. The Bible backs this up. All right, quiz number two. They didn't get this one in the first hour. Let's see if you can beat them. You have a chance. Quiz number two. What's the great chapter? I'll even give you a clue, a better clue. In the New Testament. What's the great chapter? There's one chapter. The whole chapter is about imputation of righteousness. What's the chapter? What's the book and what's the chapter? (laughs) it's Romans chapter 4. You all knew that. You just didn't want to look arrogant. Let's look at Romans 4. Paul deals with this. Romans 4, 3. For what does the Scripture say? Now, he's going to quote some Scripture about Abraham and how Abraham became righteous before God. What does the Scripture say? The Scripture says, quote, Abraham believed God. That's faith. It's not about Abraham's works. It's not about Abraham being good or bad. It's about the empty hand of faith Abraham believed God, what God had revealed to him. He believed it, and it was counted. There's our word, lagizo. It was reckoned. It was counted to him as righteousness. God took righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and put it on Abraham's account and said, because you have believed my gospel, because you have believed my good news, I reckon you now righteous. You're holy in my sight. That's imputation. Paul teaches more about this in Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but simply believes. There's a great old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, 
simply to thy cross I cling. The great British preacher, by the way, footnote, the great British preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, used to say that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And one day he had a guy in the church who wrote him um, unsigned notes with his sermon advice, anonymous notes, and one day he got the anonymous note that said, the vacuity of your hand has been sufficiently demonstrated. Watch, I'm going to start getting all kinds of notes, highfalutin notes. But that's what this says, the vacuity of our hands. We're the ones who don't work. We simply believe in him who justifies the ungodly and our faith. This is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's counted as righteousness. Paul's not done. Let's go down to Romans 4.8. He's quoting from Psalm 32. He's quoting from David. Have David done anything bad in his life? Well, adultery and murder by proxy, that's pretty bad. And and here's what David learned. He says, blessed, that's Ephesians 1, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin because it was reckoned over to Christ. That thing I did with Bathsheba and the thing I did with her noble husband Uriah, put him out in the heat of battle, let them mow him down, cover up my problem. Later in his life, David said, oh, man, I know what happened with that. God reckoned it to Jesus Christ, and he is not counting my sin against me. And then Paul goes on to talk about this, Romans 4, verses 23 and following. He says, but the words, it was counted to him. That's back to Abraham. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. That's not in the Bible, just for him. That's for all y'all. But for ours also, for our sake also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. It will be counted to us. Some of you are not Christians, and you're saying, what if, I, what if I do this thing? What if I repent of my sins and believe on the Lord Jesus? What will that do for me? Well, here's something that it'll do. There will be a great transaction that happens in a moment, in an instant, and all of your sins, and there are many, are gone in the sight of God. And all of Christ's righteousness, which is riches, are yours in the sight of God. That's what will happen. And you can live the rest of your days saying, bless God for this spiritual blessing. So that's imputed righteousness. Now we're not done with it yet, hang in there. I wanna talk about four characteristics of imputed righteousness. Number one, it is instantaneous, it's not a process. It's not you gradually becoming better and better and at a certain point God says, all right, good enough, I graded a curve, you're up, you're getting a B. No, 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 it's instantaneous. Not only is it instantaneous, the moment you believe, there's a great hymn about that too, the, the stanza goes, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. How many of you know that song? It's a great old hymn, isn't it? Yeah, that moment, it's right. It's instantaneous, it's not a process. Secondly, it's monergistic. There's another cool word. It, we are monergists. Don't know if you knew that. There's another word for you. We're monergists. What does monergism mean? It means it's one working. What's that mean? Only God is working in this. You're not contributing. 
It's not two working, that's synergism. It's one working, it's God who's doing this. It happens instantaneously and it's God who reckons the righteousness to you and you're not working and you're not doing anything and it was determined before you were born. It's not that you put in 500 and God put in 500 and now you got 1,000 on your account. You didn't put in one red penny. It's God making the whole deposit and covering your debt. It's instantaneous, it's monergistic, it's free. It's the grace of God. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I say again. It's not based on you being pretty good. You're not pretty good, you're bad. We're all bad. I spent the first 17 years of my life not a believer, didn't know about the faith, had never heard about it. Nobody who's your one to me. And for every second, for 17 years, every second, I constantly violated the most important commandment in the Bible, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I never did that, ever, 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 for 17 years. What size debt of sin is that? Not to count all the other commands I had broken in all those years and commands I've broken since then. But this isn't about me keeping commands. It's free. And furthermore, this doctrine of imputation, I want you to know, this is essential. This is like core doctrine. We're not out on some little branch somewhere and it doesn't really matter. This is really essential. It's essential to the gospel and it's essential to your salvation. And without it, there is no salvation. Listen to how the Reformed theologian Michael Horton talked about that. He said he likened the doctrine of imputation in Christianity. He likened it to the chocolate chips in a chocolate chip cookie. So you're going to make some chocolate chip cookies. So you got all these ingredients and you got some chocolate chips. And you mix up all the ingredients, but you forget to put in the chocolate chips and you stick the cookies in the oven. And when you pull them out, whatever it is that you have there, it is not what? Yeah, it's not because you forgot the chocolate chips. Chocolate chips are essential to a chocolate chip cookie, all right? Imputation is essential to the gospel. Imputation is essential to being a child of God. And he put it this way. You can have other key ingredients of the gospel, like you can have we're sinners, God's holy and just, Christ died on the cross. But if you leave out imputation, you don't have any good news. You don't have salvation. You don't have a gospel. You don't have heaven. So there are two meanings for holiness. The first of them is there is imputed holiness. It is positional, and we looked at four characteristics. Now, trust me, more briefly, you all just went. We're going to look at a second kind of holiness that's in the Bible, and these are both in Ephesians 1. This is called imparted holiness, and it's practical. What is imparted holiness? Here's, just so you believe me that I'm not making this stuff up, here's a definition from a website run by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. They're solid people. And they write, imparted righteousness is the practical godliness that Christ provides through the active faith of his people. In other words, there's imputed righteousness. That's where God reckons the work of Christ to your account and your sins go to him on the cross. Practical righteousness, rather, imparted holiness, rather, is is practical. It's you actually changing. It's you becoming more like Christ. 
It always flows out of a new heart. I'm a new creature in Christ. God has given me a new heart. What does God work on? He works on your heart. He changes your heart. He changes your loves. You love new things. You love God. You love the Word of God. You love the people of God. You love the gospel. You love the church of God. You love the mission of the gospel. You love the things of God. You love God's commands. You hate breaking them. You still break them sometimes, but you hate it, and you used to love it. Your loves have changed. Your hates have changed. Your desires, your passions, your interests have changed. 17 years, I never once had any interest whatsoever in a Bible. Don't think I had ever heard a Bible verse, ever seen or touched a Bible. 17 years. Then, bam, I'm suddenly a believer because it was by God's power. It was night and day, man. And, and immediately, I want a Bible. I'm going to start reading that Bible. I'm going to start learning that Bible. Where did that come from? He changed my loves. He does that. He regenerates you and makes you a new creature in Christ. He writes his law on the soft tablet of your softened heart, softened by his Holy Spirit. He gives you a love for Scripture. You receive a love of the truth. And imparted righteousness, imparted holiness, comes as you take up the means of grace, things God puts in your life, spigots as we described them in a sermon not long ago, as you put yourself under the spigot of gathered worship, under the spigot of your community group, under the spigot of serving somewhere in the body of Christ, under the spigot of private Bible reading, under the spigot of private prayer, under the spigot of whatever it is, there's lots of them. As you employ those means of grace over time, you increase in Christ-likeness. Now, don't let it go to your head. Don't think, well, I've really increased a lot. <laughs> no, you haven't. Neither have I. We're all wreck, but for the grace of God. And Paul talks about this imparted holiness in Ephesians. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. There's the God who's working all things in time according to the counsel of his eternal will. We, too, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not just for an imputed holiness, but also for an imparted holiness, and they always travel together. We're his workmanship for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So everybody who's got imputed holiness also gets imparted holiness. Everybody with a new heart starts following Jesus Christ. Falteringly, please hear me say this part. Please hear me. Falteringly, failingly, pathetically sometimes, with much repentance, with much sorrow, but you follow Christ. And you do some radical things in following Christ sometimes. Like he says, if your hand offends you, what do you do with your hand? You slap it? No, what did he say? Cut it off. If, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Just close it? No, no pluck it out. You go, better to grow through life with one hand and one eye than to continue in that sin. He says, mortify your members. This is serious work, but it's a fruit of regeneration. So let me give you four characteristics of imparted holiness, and we'll be just about done. Hang in there with me. It's gradual. It starts the moment you believe, and it's concluded the last moment you breathe, from believe to breathe. It goes on that whole time. It's gradual. 
Second characteristic of imparted holiness, it's synergistic. There's two working. There's you working and there's God working. That's what Paul writes in Philippians 2. We skipped that verse earlier. Slide, man, go back. Find it for me, please. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where he says, work out your own salvation. That's not work salvation. This is imparted righteousness, imparted holiness. You work on that. Work out your salvation. Do it with fear and trembling. Well, how can I? Because it is God who works in you. What's he work on? Both your will and your working for his good pleasure. That's synergism. There's two working here. You should work on it as hard as if God isn't even working on it in you. And when you make some progress, it's because God is working on you in it. It's synergism. It's also costly. I got ahead of myself and mentioned gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. It's costly, but also it's essential. It's essential to the Christian life as the fruit of your salvation, not as the means, but as the fruit. So what have we seen? Here's a concluding statement, and I have three quick points quick to close with. Concluding statement summarizes it all. So why do we bless God? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, the first of which is election unto a holiness that is both imputed and imparted. So, that's where God wants you. Blessing him. Just bless. You live your life blessing. Bless. How can I do that? Life is hard. Here's how you can do that. Look at those spiritual riches you have in Christ. Name one. Uh, there it is. That's pretty good. So a couple things in closing. One is, one I just thought of that I'll add. I had three, but it's going to be four now. Is the, the word imputation. Here's your homework assignment. You have to use that six times during lunch today. Make six sentences with the word imputation, all right? Your wife serves you something really good, and you say, I'm imputing that to your account, honey. Here's, here's the real closing. So we've looked at this imputation thing. Do you have it? Has the righteousness of Christ been reckoned to your eternal account? Have your sins been borne by Jesus Christ in his body on Calvary's cross? Do you have this double imputation performed by God? It's monergistic. Alone, he works this on your behalf. That's the first question. Here's the second one. Is there any evidence that you really have it? Do we see imputed righteousness? Do we see a new heart? Do we see new loves? Do we feel a spiritual pulse? Do we, do we see that you care about the things of God and the kingdom of God? You're a convert not in name only, but in truth. Do you have that righteousness? Is there evidence that you have it? And here's the third, final closing point. And are you blessing God? Because that's enough right there. Even if we didn't have six more of these, even if we just had this one, that's enough. You can bless God the rest of your life on that. You can dance and shout hallelujah every day. Because the righteousness of Christ has been made yours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are not yet believers. I hope you'll pray with me right now. Let's all pray together. Father in heaven, 
there must be people in this room and there must be people who will listen online who are strangers to your saving grace. But in your divine providence, according to your eternal plan, you have them here listening to this today. It's not an accident. You have them here. Or you have them listening at home with us online. But they've never believed on the Lord Jesus. They've never turned, repented, turned to you that you would be God to them. Father, call them by your powerful word. Call them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant them faith and repentance. And if I'm talking about you, one of you friends here, you just need, it's so simple, it's so easy to believe. You just need to say, Father, I'm a sinner. You're a holy God. Jesus is a Savior. Can he be my Savior, please? Just turn to God. Give him your heart. He'll give you a new heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Father, strengthen your people with these words from Scripture today. We want to be found doing all the things that